good? Good. 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 Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming to the Emergency Emerging Technologies Group and um, the uh, Warehouse Automation ROI. Uh, my name is Brian Knotts. I am Vice President of the Consumer Segments and uh, Service Robotics Division of ABB Robotics. We've got uh, three people on our panel today, each from a different aspect of this industry. And uh, really, this is our second presentation to uh, MHI. We are the newest organization within the MHI family. Um, and it really came about about a year and a half, two years ago, as we were looking at all the different technologies in warehousing and, and distribution order fulfillment. And we were seeing a big draw in robotics. And so today, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means, how to stay out of pilot purgatory, the perspectives of, of, of an end user, of a consultant, professional services consultant, of an OEM. And then we'll open up some questions and, and allow you guys to answer. So uh, I'll go ahead and let the uh, panelists introduce themselves. Start with Matthew. Uh, sure. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Culp, and I'm Executive Vice President from St. Ange Company. And St. Ange is an independent engineering consultant. And what that means is we don't buy and sell any equipment or software, so we are only working in our client's best interest. And quite often that comes down to return on investment and trying to help them select the right pieces of equipment for their specific application to meet their business needs. And I, I, was, I was telling these guys a couple minutes ago, everywhere or all the conferences I'm going to, there's a couple buzzwords that are out there. Everybody wants to disrupt their industry with innovation and everyone wants a robot. So this was interesting to me because I wanted to come and share our perspective, what we're seeing, what people are talking about, and what maybe is and isn't real. But I, I do think that it's pretty exciting and it is the future. And so everyone should start to uh, consider it. So that, that's why I'm here. Thank you, Matt. Good afternoon. I'm Brian Poveromo. I'm the Senior Facility and Maintenance Manager for American Eagle. Um, I'm probably one of the least qualified systems persons sitting in this room. But we are your future end users of all your systems. And um, I thought it was really important to come and have a discussion on ROI and how we measure what the value of putting technology is into a facility. And it's not necessarily based upon uh, spreadsheets or any of the data that's sitting on there. It's how it really helps us into the future. Obviously, one of our biggest things you're ever going to hear is we're replacing labor with automated systems. It's not about replacing labor. We cannot get correct labor to take care of the systems and get our product out the door. So we are not, I don't want to say forced, but we are motivated to find automated systems that are going to help us make our uh, product move faster. I think we were talking about it earlier, the Amazon effect. That's exactly what we're up against is same day, next day deliveries and something that we have never, ever, ever done in the past. And we need to meet that. The only way I think we will be able to do that is with um, automation and robotics but the biggest thing we're going to have an issue with is the systems helping us understand what a true ROI is and not just say we can get product out the door faster to you. And I'm hoping we can have a discussion on that today. Good, good. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Brent Barcy, Executive Director of Global Sales at Fanuc America. Uh, Fanuc is the world's largest industrial OEM when it comes to robotic arms. We've got a global install base of around 700,000. Uh, really glad to be here to talk ROI today. I know I spoke a little bit earlier, and ROI is 
a passion of mine when it comes to end users and how it's being calculated. I think it's good that the robotics group, A, was formed, but B, is, is tackling this issue because uh, in order for us to get started, we got to talk ROI and get people vested from the beginning. So glad to be here and look forward to the next half hour or so. Great. So let's talk about ROI. Let's, let's pick up on that. So right now, everybody looks at their labor costs, the number of shifts, capital cost of a robot. You do the math. Boom, there's your ROI. What we were talking about earlier, and, and I'm going to direct this at you, uh, Brian, but um, you know, Brian said he's got a few uh, different modules in his system right now, and at best, they're probably breaking even. We talked about that a little bit further and said, well, is it really breaking even or is it actually ahead because you're not having to retrain and rehire and deal with the HR aspects of those people that were performing those duties? And we have um, a couple of um, put robots that we're using currently right now. And it's by the numbers, by the spreadsheets, they're not breaking even. It's it, or barely breaking even at all. But we continue to use them in our facility because, of number one, of labor, but mainly because what we're talking about, Brian, is getting somebody retrained. So how many, I don't know how many um, end users there are in here that have to bring in temps every year. We bring in approximately 1,000 temps at, during our peak. Out of that 1,000, you're probably losing a third at any given time, just walking off the job, can't do the job, whatever it is. And we spend time training them to get up to speed. We need them to be able to function during our, our peak periods, and they fail. Robotics very rarely fail. It keeps us going. It doesn't take breaks. It works all the way through our toughest periods. So that's something I don't know if everybody measures in their ROI. Sure, I'll, I'll add something to that. Um, like, like I had said, a lot of what we do is trying to calculate the return on investment for our, our clients. And as Brian mentioned, for decades, it was fairly straightforward in the distribution center. You look at the labor, you look at the productivity difference, and you save labor, that's the biggest cost component. And if you're building a new DC, you look at avoided square foot costs or maybe avoided outside warehousing costs. And those are the, the biggest components. You could always build out a more complicated return on investment model. But if you got the space and the labor down, you were probably directionally correct. Now, there's a lot more attention to those ancillary uh, payback items. As Brian mentioned, a lot of times the productivities are, are similar. And, and honestly, a lot of the robotics within picking and packing are still um, very early in their development. And so I'm sure that's going to get a lot better. But for now, you're looking at the things Brian mentioned, training costs, avoided absenteeism, avoided health costs. And where it was talked about before, now our clients are looking to put numbers on those. Um, increased sales. We talked about needing to, Amazon's training everyone, where even if you don't need that, pair of jeans next day, you want it next day, and if you can't get it next day, um, they're going to go somewhere else to get it, like Brian said. So a lot of discussion, and being an engineering company, we love equations, we love numbers, we love when the spreadsheet says 2.2 years, 3.8 years, go with 2.2 years. Well, now those numbers are a lot more you know, fuzzy, but it's getting the people to get behind them and agree to them, and then... The next step is putting it into a presentation to present 
to the corporate office or whoever's going to write the check for the automation. The nice thing about the robots for me is that they are a little more modular than your traditional automated systems. And Brian mentioned science experiments, but there, there's a, a saying with the MHI or the robotics group that I, I've seen repeated a couple of times, and it's, you know, think big, really big, start small, really small. And the robots allow you to do that um, and kind of test it and learn a little bit by trial and error, whereas you can't do that with, with some of the other multi-million dollar systems out here. So, Brent, I was going to tee this up from an OEM standpoint. Uh, we're seeing more and more of the collaborative robots picking up speed and being able to work in these environments that ne don't necessarily have to be caged. But in either regard, safety is absolutely critical because the cost of a life is, is immeasurable. So how do we, from an OEM standpoint, how do we calculate that into these ROIs? Yeah, safety is the overriding priority uh, when you walk in the door there. And, and collaborative robots are great. You can do a lot of good things with collaborative robots, but if you put a machete and the end of our tool, that collaborative robot, it's no longer more co collaborative, right? Um, so we, we got to be careful, and it goes back to the automation audit, that we call it. Uh, you have to get in there. You have to really take a look at how your safety standards work and if a collaborative robot makes sense. Um, and that happens at the beginning. What are, your, what are your safety standards? If you bring an OEM, if you bring an integrator, to kick the can and really see, is this a true collaborative robotic application? Does my throughput, can my throughput handle the speed that this collaborative robot's going to go. Because um, collaborative robots are, tend to be more, a little more expensive and slower. You can do a lot of cool things with uh, DCS and, and, and area scanners and in a standard industrial robot today that people weren't thinking about 10 years ago. So I think it all goes back to one, safety standards, what, what your internally your systems can handle, but really getting uh, the OEM or an integrator involved at the beginning of the, of the process. So let, let's take it to the beginning here. Um, before we ever get into an ROI calculation, we've got an idea. Hey, I have a human doing something. I need to automate that because I can't find the labor. The labor cost is high. It's not reliable. Uh, in this case, there's a lot of technologies out here that we can do very simple ROI calculations. They've been around for 30, 40, 50 years. And robotics in this industry is sort of where it was in the automotive industry 40 years ago, where it's now more commoditized and, and it's well-known and it's easy to findable. In this case, there are tons of pilots going on, and, and as you alluded to, Brian, garage experiments or, or science experiments. So how do we have that conversation about ROI when we're, we're trying to figure out what we're going to get the robotic solution to do, and how do you work that through your organization to get buy-off on, on some of these pilots? I, I think initially it goes back to the beginning piece on labor. That, that's the first driver for anybody on my executive team is what's in it for me. And I, I think that's every company's what's in it for me. Once we achieve that understanding that we can't meet all of the requirements with, with current labor or current technology, that's when they, we start to get that being asked, what is innovative that's out there? But that's when our problems begin because there is so much out there and there is so many promises to what robotics can do. And I'm not saying they're not true promises. We just don't know how they're fitting into our business. So we don't know if it's really a good fit. And how do you know until you pilot something? So I, I think my that would be my biggest um, feedback to everybody is please be open to piloting. 
It, it's not about that initial sale. It's I would love to see some of these startup companies come and pilot. Let's partner and work together. And I think that's one of the areas that would help expand this pretty quickly is partnerships with everybody. In the so industry. how do we avoid how do we avoid pilot purgatory though? Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll point that to. Uh, Brent. You know, I, a couple things. You said to start at the beginning. With this whole process in your facilities when it starts, if you don't have buy-in from finance, I think the biggest mistake that we make as an industry is more often than not, it's the maintenance crew, it's the engineering crew that says we've got these applications. We want to automate them. They bring an OEM in. They bring an integrator in. They get a price. They go to their finance committee or their board or whoever, and they see the price, and they light their hair on fire. They go, oh, my gosh, we can't afford this. We'll never buy a robot. It's just not going to happen. I think... We've seen success at FANUC when whoever has that power of the pen is engaged at the beginning. If you can bring the finance people to the table from the start so they can see that you have 300 people on first ship, 15% of them aren't showing up. They can see that from a throughput perspective, you're not fulfilling the orders that need to get to Walmart or need to get to Target or whoever you're supporting. If they can see those five, 10 trailers a day aren't getting loaded, they can feel the pain of the people that are on the floor. Because if you're just taking a number to a finance person, they're going to go, ROI is 2.5. That's how we calculate it. We're never going to buy off on it. So I, to get the finance people involved somewhat at the beginning, to feel the pain that you're going through on the floor, uh, that's the success we've seen in, in our market anyways because the, the $12 an hour plus 30% for your burden rate, call it 15 times 2,080 work hours, is no longer the burden rate. It's missing orders. It's people not showing up, retraining, safety, all that stuff that goes into this. There is a formula. I don't think we know exactly what it is, but there is a formula that you, you really got to come up with internally. But if finance has a vested interest from the beginning and sees the pain that you're going through on the floor, they tend to sign off on it. Mm -hmm. Matt, anything from the professional services side? What are you hearing from your customers when they're coming to you saying, we need to solve this particular area and we think robotics is the answer? Sure, and I, I wanted to add a little bit on to what these two gentlemen said and traditionally again as an engineering consulting company we were engineering solutions and for the ROI we were focused on the R. Now we can shift in where robotics are concerned to the I and help consult with our clients like, like Brian said to work on the OEMs and say this is let's invest in this together. The, I think the, the collaborative robots in the picking area in the DCs get that and, and maybe with the the, the robotic companies that are large or have been around for 40 years in the automotive industry, I mean, these guys get it, but helping to communicate to their salespeople that this is the distribution center, it's not the manufacturing plant. We haven't had them forever. This is a huge market, and let's work with us, put a pilot in, maybe fund that, and we'll let you come in and tour the building uh, as many times as you like, or we'll let you film it and put it on YouTube, or some of these other things instead of just the big check, other advantages that the OEMs can get that the, um, the people can work with around the robots. Okay. Good. On that note, I, I would agree. It's simply put, I think we both need to have some skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about paying out, you know, a half a million dollars to have an arm go in and hope it works. We both need to have some skin in the game to see what will be successful in the future. Okay. Excellent. So, Brian, uh, before we started, you brought up an interesting topic that I think goes into ROI that is probably being missed today, and that's the aspect of, of aftermarket service, aftermarket maintenance, 
the training of, of, of your organization to support this solution that is, is relatively new technology in this space. So how are you taking that to your C-suite, to your CFO, and, and discussing that through the finance of, of how we're going to do this project? That's one of those difficult discussions. Yeah, of course. Because it's, um, it's not something that's visible to our executive teams. And they just expect that, number one, when you guys install something, it's just going to work. <laughs> that, you know, there's, there's never going to be a problem with the next robot you put in to a facility, but there will be. And I am a firm believer in we cannot afford to have outside maintenance. Again, skin in the game and ownership means my team needs to be trained and be able to take care of whatever's installed there. And especially at a cost factor, going back to the Amazon effect, I can't afford to be down for a half an hour mm -hmm. or 45 minutes. I need to have that system when it does break, and it will be brought back up pretty darn quickly. So that means my team needs to be trained. We're falling right back into that labor shortage, finding trained technical staff, and then finding the time to get them actually hands-on training on a live system. Big problem, we put in a system and we tell the guys, you've been through school, and they have, they sat in 10, 12, 14 hours of training, doesn't mean they're capable of fixing that piece of equipment yet. Okay. That's one of those hurdles, because when it goes down, now they're complaining that we're not meeting the ROI, and you said this robot would do this, right. or you said the system would do that and it comes back down on our teams. We need to find a way to make sure people are getting trained and that the training programs are much stronger and some virtual training. Okay. Dovetailing on that though, yeah. I know a lot of people when they see the training cost, again, want to light their hair on fire. Mm -hmm. um, and that needs to go into the ROI because if, there's, if someone doesn't have ownership, of, like you said, you put, this in, you put this in the plan and there's no one with ownership of it, eventually it, the system's gonna stub its toe, it's gonna take a while to get back up, so uh, that needs to be calculated at the beginning with regard to training. Training all too often is an afterthought, uh, just kind of something that just gets talked about once the system's in. That needs to be from the day one, training needs to be talked about from an ROI factor because there is a return on investment and in training. If you don't make it up front, you're gonna pay for it later. We see it time and time again. So I would uh, say, you know, buyer beware. Training's a, a big deal and, and, and plan for it at the beginning. And I would say the OEMs need to push that. It's the OEMs that get the bad name. <laughs> but when something breaks and it don't work, it's, oh, that darn Fanuc's not working. Or, you know, the ABB's dead again. We, we, it's, it, you guys need to push that. Yep. That training is mandatory. Or I won't sell it to you. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, and I know that's not a great sales tactic, but if you're not, if you're not willing to put, again, the time in, then I don't know if you really want to put your stuff on the floor and have your name on it. Let's talk a little bit about getting into these science experiments and how we control the first win, right? I think you said uh, think big, think really big, but start small, really small. And I think, uh, Brent, you alluded to that earlier. You know, everybody thinks, well, if a human can do it, a robot can do it. And we've got a lot of incredible technologies around this building from vision and AI and grippers and all of that. But um, you know, how do we look at that and how do we set the expectation through integrators to the end user as to what we're gonna start with and what that journey looks like so that we can get to a true ROI and a deployable scenario? Um, I, 
think that's a good question. And the, the part about thinking big first and then starting small is at least taking some thought and effort into laying out a three to five year roadmap or plan or strategy and getting everyone focused on the on the same vision. There's there's old song lyrics. If you don't have vision, you'll do whatever you're told and you don't want everyone going off in, in, in other directions. So that strategic phase to set the destination and then work yourself back to the plan and then take taking that first step is is one important key. And part of that uh, five-year strategy in terms of tips or tricks or creative ways to pay it back is maybe stepping outside the four walls and going back to your network study. And the thing with those network optimizations are transport heavily transportation-based and given the population of the country, they're plopping the, the dots in the same areas. Mm -hmm. And so everyone's building their DCs in roughly the same areas. So you get creative around assumptions around in, in labor shortages, what is the true minimum wage to get people going to be, and maybe increasing those wage assumptions. Or looking at, okay, we're going to go somewhere else where we don't have the competition, but then there's no the lab labor availability. So that's another way to justify it. And you're going to increase your transportation costs. So that's more um, that you put into your, your return on investment. And all that starts with talking about all the factors of the supply chain and that, that five-year strategy vision working backwards and then taking the first step. Okay. From the end user perspective, um, we all dream big. You know, and we, I walk up and I look at something that I think I can automate and my vision is of that perfect machine. It would be great when um, the experts can give me realistic expectations of what they can do and what cannot be done. So you guys know what your equipment does. And you know that every end user you walk into has a much higher expectation of you than is probably possible to do. You set expectations early to what they should be and how long it's going to take to get something done. Don't don't prom don't overpromise and underperform. Underpromise and overperform. Okay. Anything there, Brent? I I think he said it pretty eloquently. <laughs> so um, I I guess the last topic I want to bring up and talk, and then we'll sort of open it up to the floor, um, is about different investment models, right? And we talked a little bit about this beforehand. Um, traditionally, it's been a capex type of purchase, but again, this is science experiments, these are pilots. It's a, in, our, in our case, we've had projects where we've done a proof of concept, taken it to a, a performance lab, then taken it to a, a DC, and then we start looking at the pilots and the ROI and the deployment cycle and all of that. Um, we've also looked at OPEX funding, um, where it's a lease, lease, to buy, lease to own type of scenario. There's a lot of companies out here, primarily from the Vision AI, that are looking at a, at a different performance-based model, but um, I'll, I'll sort of throw it to you first, Brian, is because you've probably seen all of them. And from an end user, what are you looking for in, in how you're driving these projects? You're right, Brian. We, I think we've touched upon each and every one of those areas, from a CapEx purchase to um, leasing to a um, pay-per-piece. And another area that we're starting to look into is um, rental. Can, can we, for our peak, be able to rent a piece of equipment, start with a baseline, obviously, mm -hmm. and have a baseline system of whatever number of uh, robotics, but then be able to rent when we come up to our peak? 
scale up, scale and down. Scale up and scale down, and that and that's huge for distribution, you know, for retailers like ourselves, because we have a couple times of the year where we're over the top busy. The rest of the year could never justify that capital expenditure, and that's kind of a new concept, and you get a lot of uh, roll of the eyes and shrug of the shoulders, but I, I think it's something we, we need to invest in and take a look at. Is it possible, and, and what scale we can do that at? Brent, from an OEM standpoint, I mean, it's interesting to hear him say that, right? I, I think about modules in the back of our warehouses, and we drop them in. There's obviously commissioning every time. There's, you know, we haven't really even evaluated that, but, but what are your thoughts as an, as an OEM in that regard? Yeah, robots as a service is definitely an interesting concept. I, I know that there's a lot of people out there that are dabbling in the market today. Um, I, I don't know how scalable it's going to be. I don't know how sustainable it can be just because right. the amount of work it's going to take. When your peak hits, the amount of work it takes to get that system up and running, by the time your peak is there and then you got to tear it out, I mean, you're looking at a six, seven, eight-month window so at that point, does it just make sense Rinse to... Rinse and repeat, right. To, to, right. So I, by the time you tear it out, you got to get it back in there. So I know there's a lot of people that are trying to play with those models to where a lease to own or just a straight lease uh, and robots of service because a lot of different warehouses... I know there's a lot of warehousing people here. They have three, five-year contracts, so they don't want to buy the, si buy the system, but they'd like to lease it for three years because they know they have a contract with a suntan lotion company or a diaper company or something like that. I think that's where it might make more sense for a lot of people in that type of market to look at leasing equipment, but with regard to peak and dealing with the stuff that, that a lot of the end users are dealing with, it's, I think it's still evolving. Well, I think it goes back, and I'll, I'll build upon that, I think it goes back to the idea of I have a human standing here, so how do I put an articulated arm there to do the same thing? And you can't treat it as a discrete operation anymore. You really have to look at the upstream and the downstream and how this robotic solution ties into that overall ecosystem. And in some cases, we've seen where we've looked at a solution and said, okay, you need to tear all of this out and think about a new way of doing it if you're going to bring robotics in because it's going to give you this much more flexibility and efficiency if you stop thinking about it as a manual operation. And that's a bigger story to have because you're talking about a much bigger pilot, much bigger proof of concept, bigger ROI. The C-suite gets involved. But, um, and it's not really what our, our topic was today, but it, it gives people food for thought when you think about what robotics can do with all these technologies that are out here and how we apply them. Don't just think about human equals robot, robot equals human, because that you're missing the bigger picture of the value that a robotic solution can bring, com you know, tied into all of the other technologies that are out here. So, But again, that brings a much bigger ROI solution. Have you had somebody come in and say, okay, see, the way you're doing it now, blow it up and put something else in? Not for the current facilities, but looking at any future facilities. Greenfield? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Any comments on that, Matt? I mean, uh, what type of solutions are your customers coming to you for in, in evaluating? Is it more of a, here's the labor issue I have and here's how I replace it with a robot? Or are they thinking about how do I generate 30, 40, 50% more efficiency in this quadrant of my facility doing this particular order fulfillment or this particular uh, uh, depowling operation or something? Sure, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think the way I, would on, the way I would answer that is that the thoughts aren't that well formed and it's really more a lot of curiosity 
and frustration. So there's a lot of frustration with the labor shortage that we heard about. There's curiosity on, on what's out there because they don't really know all the options. And then there's a little anxiety in that no one wants to be left behind. And there's this sense that everyone else has a robot, I need a robot. And it's, at least in distribution, it's not necessarily the case. And that's why with the ROI, we, again, that a little bit of repeating myself, but focus on the I as much as the R, because there aren't really any large installation bases where any of the mm -hmm. newer robotic companies right. can take them to a distribution center to see this, to feel good about it. So let's work together to build those installation bases so that there is something to look at. And then, because for the clients that are putting it in, that's tremendous knowledge too. And we don't want to really talk about it, but there's benefit to those people of gaining that intellectual knowledge that then becomes very marketable. And, and who knows how you can monetize those people's knowledge in the future too. There's, if you're creative with uh, revenue streams and how your, your business can operate, at, you know, maybe they can have Brian consult in, in five years because he knows all the history on it. And there's another revenue stream for American Eagle. Just again, just thinking creatively about the possibilities. But you're right, for the robotics, there isn't a one robotic solution for the warehouse, and it is about integrating it. Well, one, identifying where you want to integrate it. So are you gonna have robotic induction to a, a unit sorter? Are you gonna have robotic carts going around to lead the people? Are you gonna have robotic put walls? It's identifying where you want to focus first, and then understanding systemically how to, how to work it into the flow. And, and the comment we've got here is the art of the possible. We talk about all the things we can have a robot do. There are things a robot can't do, and we need to draw a quick, hard line so that we don't get into that path that ends up becoming a big suck on company resources or OEM resources or integrated resources. So, um, Just one, one other small thing from our perspective, and anybody else that's an end user, keep your doors open. When you put in the technology, it doesn't mean we should be behind shuttered doors and, and not allow others to see what you have done. Our product competes. The equipment does not compete. We need to be open to allow people to come in and see the technology that, that you've installed. And you learn something from those people also. They, they may have done something that you didn't even think about. Being a closed door and not allowing people to come see your technology is a, is a huge mistake. Interesting, okay, excellent. Well, you know, thank you very much for uh, taking the questions. I guess we'll open it up to the group here. Um, and I think we have a microphone. Are we gonna use one of our microphones, Pat? Or um, So raise your hand if you have a question. We'll get you a microphone one, one way or the other. We're gonna get Pat to run it. Hi, so kind of new at this, so. With artificial intelligence and companies like Amazon coming in and offering the community, uh, if they build a distribution center there and they're gonna, op the, the city requires so many jobs for them to build their distribution center, how do you uh, create a balance with people that aren't showing up for their, their job and deciding you need to go to artificial intelligence, but you also made a promise to the city that you're going to have so-and-so so number of jobs. Okay, so, so the question is, and, and this may come to you from a professional services, because you probably span both counties and, and the end users when they're looking to build a new DC, 
There's promises of certain number of jobs coming in. There's obviously the, the negativity around robotics taking people's jobs, although I, I don't believe that in any regard. The automotive industry would not have employees today if that was the case. But um, how, do we, how do we balance the, the, the uh, discussion between promising number of jobs and how AI and robotics sort of comes into play on that? Have you had any of those conversations with your customers? And I, I will take it, uh, but I know Brian has some, a lot <laughs> sure of direct Brian experience some, yeah. with the county and in his DCs and, and, and working with them on job creation. But uh, I, I think what we would tell those people is that the, the economy and customer demand is what's creating the jobs. And really, we need to pursue the automation and the options in this unemployment environment we're in just to have the, you know, remain profitable and operational in this area. So. We're bringing the jobs, the, the customer demand, the economy takes care of that, and we're just trying to make sure we can do it at a profit and stay in this location. Brian? I can tell you from, and we have a pretty highly automated uh, distribution center in um, Hazleton, Pennsylvania. We, we have far exceeded the number of people we said we were going to hire, mm -hmm. and we will never be a dark facility. Robotics and automation is strictly an augmentation to meet that future growth as we continue to grow as a company. So I, I would say we, from the day we opened to where we are now, we are four times the number of people that the, that the city thought we were going to hire. They thought we'd be at about 150 to 200 personnel, and we're much higher than that now. So it's strictly augmentation for future growth. And it, it's a little bit of a shift in those roles as well. Before, you might have somebody picking and placing a package on a sorter induction system. Now, as, you, as we talked about briefly, we're training those people up to operate those systems and become robotic uh, experts of the technology and, and maintenance of that, so. And you, if some of that stuff to the more astute politician sounds like what they usually shovel, you know, the, the BS. <laughs> um, as an engineer, I like a spreadsheet and I say, you know, we, we promised whatever, 500 people when we were gonna ship 25 million units a year, well, the more that we do, the more corporate sends our way and the more we can turn it through. And so we might have to go get an outside storage facility, but we have the engine to process 40 million, 45 million. And we need, even though it's less people per unit shipped, you know, it's more people in total. So the better we do, the more we can process with the automation, the more jobs we'll bring in just by being able to do more and more profitably. Does that help? Okay. Hi, I'm AJ from Pickle Robot. You mentioned, Brian, uh, that on the one hand, you want to avoid science projects, sure. On the other hand, you want your OEMs and your other partners to have skin in the game. So for me, I want to put skin in the game if you want to do a science project. So can, do you, can you give us some examples of, of maybe where you've split that difference in, in specific uh, cases? I have the perfect example of what we're doing right now. We are working with an integrator to install a um, induction arm onto one of our sorters. It's definitely a science project, no, no doubt about it. Um, the expectation was sometime last year for it to be live. It's not quite there yet, and that's where both of us have skin. I, I understood that it was going to take some time to get this system up and running, and that they would have to work with their partners, their vision partners, the, the um, arm, you know, working with the, uh, the robotic arm working with the end effector and they they're trying to bring it all together and that's exactly where we're dealing from that is it is a partnership I'm I'm giving some time on my floor I'm giving the ability to try it and and test it and a lot of input 
and helping them fabricate. When they're, oh, I need this made, my guys go and fabricate. So we, we have a really good relationship doing that. But I have like what I like to see it up and running at, you know, 500 units an hour. Yeah, that would be fantastic. <laughs> but I, that's not the expectation. It's going to take some time. And if we don't do it that way, we'll never get what we want. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll get something that's not quite what we've asked for. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, I, I, this question is for Brian and Matt maybe. Um, what's the best ROI you have seen from new robotic vendors? Like any, or any place where you see the most um, opportunity for uh, robotic solution? So I, I, I believe the question was, what's the best ROI we've seen from a, a robotic implementation? Is that right? Well, um, the, the best ROIs we've seen have been, honestly, in the manufacturing area as opposed to the, um, the distribution area. Uh, we have not, we've, I've worked, our company's worked with a couple of robotic companies specifically. Some of the startups are asking the same questions that the clients are. Where do we fit in? How can we fit in? You're the distribution experts. Um, how do we get payback within the system? So I wouldn't say we've seen a traditionally attractive return on investment within a pick and pack operation yet, but within the warehousing, um, and I guess the other thing would be everyone wants to call themselves a robot now, and so what makes a robot a robot? And you, you, you might throw a, you know, a robot tag on an old AGV. Is that the AGV now an AMR? I, I, you know, I don't know, and it's a little bit in the eye of the beholder and what truly is a robot, but as long as everyone's pushing forward, continually getting better, the industry's moving forward, um, I think that's all we can ask for. So have we seen a two-year payback on a robotic implementation and pick and pack yet? No. Right. No, we haven't. We're, um, honestly, the industry is still figuring that out. We're still in pilot mode in many cases. Right. Right. To Matt's original point, and, and I firmly agree, it is about the eye. It's the investment. Uh, we, we have not seen you know, any additional money back from any of the robotics that we put in place. It's broke even. It's helped us from a labor perspective, but the true investment is, is how can I use this in the future? If I don't have that experience with robotics and the ability to say, hey, this works or this don't work, I won't know what to do in the future. And I won't know what to put into the building the next time I need a new system in there. So it's, it's about investing in the equipment and seeing what it can do and educating the team that Robotics and automation are, is a partner to us. It's, it's not a replacement, it's a partner, and how do we partner with it? I want to go back to something from the first five or so minutes of the conversation. Y'all mentioned um, health cost and training costs that you add to you know the $15 per hour that you actually pay to an operator. Um, so. I use fully burdened labor costs in my ROI calculations, and I'm curious what all y'all think is reasonable to include in that. So, you know, health cost and training for sure. What else is fair to add in? Benefits. We, we pay our full-time employees really well in benefits. So you gotta add that in to the full burden cost and along with what you were just brought up. Uh, maybe human resources and recruiting costs. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a lot of time spent um, 
just trying to find the people before you even convince them to work there. So there, a number of our clients have very high recruiting, ongoing, continuous recruiting costs. Brent? A lot of the, the warehousing companies that we're dealing with, the justice companies we're dealing with, have three, four, five staffing companies that are sending crews in every single day. You have 300 people a shift. The average for a lot of these companies is like 12% don't show up, might not show up for work that day. So that's got to go into your calculation. I don't know. I, I don't know what that number is, but they're going literally. You're going through orientation every single day, and every single shift. There is a cost to that. There's a cost to that when it comes to your quality because these are brand new people that are coming in. They're probably only going to be there for six weeks if you're lucky, and they're leave for a dollar more an hour to go across the street. So there's there's so many different boxes to check other than just your burn rate, plus your health benefits, plus your your HR marketing scheme to try to get people in there because. We're just seeing it day in and day out that people are not showing up for these jobs and it's 10 to 50 percent hit rate on a daily basis so really look at it from that perspective too yeah build on that i would say talk with your eh and s group talk with your hr group ask them with the grand vision of what you want to do what the ramifications are and they'll be happy to give you some of their statistics as well as retraining health and safety you know injury reports things like that I just wanted to add one other thing is a common, um, I won't even call it an error, but a, a, an assumption that I think is incorrect that I see a lot of clients make is they assume that the temps and the seasonals you get in will have the same productivity rate in their calculations. And so if you normally pick 125, 150, 200 pieces an hour, at least a 65% reduction um, on the temp people for all those reasons that he stated. And just w one other quick is, when you're looking at full burden rate, and if you're talking about contingent labor, that full burden rate for contingent labor is much, much higher right. than you would be paying for a full-time employee. Right. And we, you know, and in distribution, we use a lot of temp labor. And then um, anything from the safety standpoint, you know, one workman's comp case is um, over the top. Mm -hmm. 100%. So I had three questions, or three areas. Uh, food safety, cleanup, PMs, preventative maintenance, and also downtime. Those are all factors that I'd like you guys to speak to and what to factor in when you're looking at your automation. I can't speak to food safety cleanup, thank God. <laughs> That's not, 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 not in my area, but no, yeah, we have a cleaning crew comes in to sweep and do, do that. But from the PMs and, and the uh, downtime, I'm pretty proud to say we're running a 99.9% uptime rate with equipment. That's based on training. If we didn't train and we didn't constantly train, we wouldn't be able to run that kind of an uptime rate in our facility. PMs are king. We, we are about a 98% completion rate on PMs. We would probably be higher than that if it wasn't that operations as tells you, oh, guess what? you can't have that piece of equipment because they need to get something done, so it, it drives it down. Without doing those two, we'd be in a lot of trouble. That, that has to get done. That goes back to that training piece, and it goes back to the buy-in of your team. They have to own that building and own the facility and want to run it. Okay. I think we've got time for one question here. Hi there. Uh, thanks for answering all these questions. Uh, so if you had to pick one or two tasks that were not, they're not, are currently automated in your DCs that you wish were, what would they be?
I think we've looked at, at a ton of areas that we would love to see automated. For me, it would be in our retail area, retail put, I think would be a tremendous area to uh, be able to uh, automate. I'm not sure it can be done easily. I just told you one of the areas that would probably be the most difficult for us. Uh, we, you know, we use a scan and put system into cases. If somebody could come up with a function for that, that would be tremendous. That would be the one area for me. Okay. Good. When I see a team hand stacking and palletizing, I think it's just low-hanging fruit. It's there to get palletizers into these buildings. It makes all the sense in the world. It's a quick base hit, easy to do, and uh, gets people acclimated to robotics. Yep, 100%. Now, I, I guess the obvious one is picking, right? So the, the robotic challenge is autonomous mobility and grasping and vision. So if someone can put those three together and have a, autonomous mobility, the vision for identification, selection, and separation, and then the grasping, that, that's the home run everyone's waiting for, but it's a lot easier said than done. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Brent, Brian, and, and Matt today. Um, hopefully it was informative, and uh, we look forward to seeing you out on the floor. Thank you very much.